Welcome to The Daily Stand. My name is Sam Zoloff, Head of Growth at ADK Group. In this season, we'll be looking at product leadership and strategy through the experiences of different product owners and operators. Some you may have heard of, and some are sharing their hard-earned lessons for the first time. In either case, you'll walk away with ideas, insights, and lessons that will help you excel at designing, building, and scaling products. Good morning, and welcome to The Daily Stand. Today, we have a conversation between Chris Baker, the Chief Strategy Officer at ADK Group, and Matt Tharp. Matt is the Chief Product Officer at Gamelon, whose conversational AI chat product is used by organizations like Toyota, Avaya, and BASF. The conversation goes into detail about org structure, the role of the CPO, and balancing leadership with proximity to customers. But first, Matt explains a little bit more about what it's like building an AI-powered product. Ooh, okay. Let me unpack. <laughs> yeah, yeah like a, for sure. Okay. So um, when I met the CEO and the team at Gamelon, it was a really interesting kind of unique opportunity where they um, had been funded by DARPA effectively. You know, they won a, a DARPA grant um, from the work that they did with their early research and that sort of funded the company. So they're very much is sort of coming out of an MIT, you know, Stanford kind of research point of view, a very academic point of view. Yep. They've been doing R&D for about five years, uh, mostly R. And, <laughs> uh, and they'd commercialized some of the tech along the way, but it was like, okay, we know what our IP is. We know what we want to do. We know what we want to, like what, how we can help, where we're unique. What do we make? Like, what do we build? And, you know, most people will tell you never, build tech out, you know, never, never, never build a thing and then try to figure out where to apply it. But in this case, in AI, um, it's actually a little different because AI takes so long to run the research process and like really figure out what's going to work and how you're going to, how it is differentiated or or how it, what, what value you can actually deliver that it, it was actually one of those rare cases where I thought it made a lot of sense. Okay. And that was, um, and so for me, they were like, look, we've, I think we can really do some really interesting differentiated things. We can solve some problems in AI that people haven't been able to solve before. Where do we point this? What do we do? And we need somebody to come in and help us figure out a product. And that was like a perfect opportunity to come in and, and it kind of tied together marketing platform, you know, big data CDP stuff that I'd done. It tied together chat because it was language-based AI. It was like a cool opportunity to just yeah. tie everything together and solve the problem that I think from a product perspective, you had to have a unique kind of capability to solve. So uh, it's not hard to build a live chat product. Like, honestly, if you've got decent product chops and good UX, you can build a live chat product, you can get some market share. Yeah. Um, I would say over the last handful of years, a good number of companies have proven that. Yeah. Inter- Intercom is a great, wonderful success, success story, but the core problem is much harder. And I think it's a problem that is affecting all SaaS, frankly. And that is we've reached a point of kind of peak workflow. Um, you can only build so many workflows and at a certain point you're not really innovating. It's just a new workflow to do the same workflow that you've been doing for the last, you know, 10, 15 years where AI comes into play is you're solving for a part of the people problem. AI is actually coming in and is saying, yeah, yeah, the workflow is how humans do it. The job of AI is to do what some of the humans are doing. And so like, how do I build a product where the product is doing the job 
And now you have to like rethink the entire idea of what interacting with this product means, because it's not just a tool to help you find things or check things off a list. It's, um, or send emails, which is like, I just described 95% of SaaS software. It's something else. And, mm -hmm. and that's a really interesting thing. And so for me, it was like, yeah, it was like a really interesting opportunity to dig in and having been in SaaS since it became a term to really think about like, what does it mean to be SaaS in an AI age to do SaaS differently, to like re-envision that concept. And I thought that was too good to pass up. Yeah. Yeah. Cool opportunity. And then, so I, I don't know what your organization looks like at Gamelon, but if you're going to make a first hire in your product organization, like if, if you get to the point where it's like, okay, I'm building out my org, where does your mind go first? Is it a researcher? You know, who is that person? So I'm assuming the engineering arm is taken care of. So yeah. assuming I have an engineering partner that's sure. yeah. strong and can run that organization. So we'll pretend for a second the engineering <laughs> side of the house is yeah. resolved. Yeah. Often it's not, but let's pretend yeah. it is. Um, from a product perspective, the first person is a, is a designer. Um, my job is to help the team see the future. It's to help visualize what we want to do. I also think that in my personal experience, um, engineering teams can be a lot more effective if they really can see what it is you're talking about. And not because you're prescribing the solution, but you're saying like, here's the problem that we want to solve. Here's what this would look like. Here's, here's how, like, we want them to be able to do this. So we want the workflow to be able to satisfy these needs. We want to be able to do X, Y, and Z. How we do it, that's up to you. But like, this is kind of the experience that we want to deliver. I think also, while 10 years ago, this might've been optional and maybe even odd, I think this is a requirement these days. Like, you can't be successful if your product experience is bad or clunky. You can't succeed now that way. Um, the user has to feel like you're doing what they want you to do as a product. Like speaking for the product, the user has to log in and feel like the, like the tech they're using knows what they want it to know, like knows what they want it to do. They just know where things are found. And you have to be able to paint that picture. That is not something that happens naturally. Like I love working with engineers. It's not like user experience is not intuitive to them, to most of them. Um, and you don't necessarily want them thinking about that. You want them really focused on the best possible technical solution to the problem and how to make it work and how to make it robust and scalable. And, and so the very first person is a designer or, or a team of designers. Um, and then it depends on the level of skill of the designer. It's often hard to find a full stack designer. Like it just really is. Like they are as much unicorns as anybody these days. And mm -hmm. and so you might often need to hire two. Um, my my personal experience is that the 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 quality of feedback you get from customers is roughly equal to the quality of prototype you put in front of them. <laughs> yeah. And I find that something that more junior designers and even product people will do is they will mock up a kind of rough prototype and they'll just put it in front of customers say like you know react to this this is my oh god let's talk about pet peeves putting a rough design in front of somebody or even a reasonably good design to be like react to this yep. such a, such a terrible <laughs> terrible practice yeah 
you need to know, they need to know what feedback they, that you want or you can't get what you want out of that meeting, right? So yep. um, that just drives me, sorry. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, yeah. So the designers would be first and I would say like probably somebody who's on the strong, like strong UX side, like really understands the psychology of the user and how to design for that. And then the other person who's a visual expert who just can whip out interfaces in their sleep and make them look awesome. And sometimes you are lucky and blessed enough to find somebody who can do both. Um, often it requires two people. So those would be the first hires. So I, I actually want to dive a little bit more into the, 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 so you said first hires UX and then, you know, you could call it UI, you could call it visual designers. Um, and you, you mentioned that, you know, you'd put this engineering problem over to the side saying, I'm assuming, engineering is taken care of in your experience um engineering under product engineering in its own org i've never actually had engineering report to product okay so it's never been a problem for me hmm. um there are practical reasons to do it in some organizations um in my experience, really good engineering leaders, it's kind of immaterial. They're like, like I partner with product, so it doesn't matter who reports to who, it's a partnership. Mm -hmm. um, and they get that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I've, I, I just honestly, I don't have data points to have said I've done, done it both ways. Um, yeah. I, I know this is actually a really like critical topic for, for some product leaders, like it's really important to them and I, I don't, I would actually love to have, I'd love to interview them and see like, you know, why is this so important to you? So you just hit on something that was a question I wanted to ask, which is where you see product fitting into org charts, where it can report, where it can't report. You know, I've certainly seen a lot of product people embedded in engineering organizations, which has all sorts of um, potentially benefits, but also risks. And, and do you have any opinions, uh, even if they're controversial on that, on that topic? <laughs> so I don't know that they're going to be controversial. They're probably <laughs> the kind of tried and true yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. things that you do. No, I look, I think um, it depends on the industry. Like I don't want to speak for all industries. I have quite a bit of experience now in, in tech products. I think I can feel comfortable speaking to that yeah. in a SaaS business. You are your product. Yeah. Like that's why like, 90% of SaaS products, the name of the company and the name of the product are synonymous. They are the same thing because the, the company is the product. So I think in that regard, you know, you need a chief product. You've got to have somebody whose job is to own product and they have to be a senior exec. I mean, honestly, this sometimes takes care of itself in a lot of organizations because the CEO, the founder is a product person. They are coming from that point of view. And then often product ultimately reports to the CEO in that case or in the found or the founder. Um, I've worked with really smart technical founders who knew they were technical founders and had a senior level, whether it was senior VP or C level product leader or co-founder often who's on the product side to kind of counter their technical point of view. Sure. So from, a, from my experience, when you're talking about applications and SaaS and, and kind of tech, I think I would say from like product is its own org. Um, you can have technology not under product. That's totally reasonable. Um, but they have to be equal. Huh. And they, 
they need to at least, I mean, product at least needs to have a direct line to the CEO. And in often cases should feel like they are within certain, within certain boundaries, like somewhat a, a colleague or a peer, like co-decision makers, right? Um, and I think that's, that's critical. Now, outside of that, obviously that changes, right? If you're in a large brand where there's a lot of different product lines and you're more of like a product line owner, um, that changes a bit. And so the, where you live in the org is, um, it depends on the structure of the organization, but you, you are effectively the CEO of your product line. And, and so the buck stops with you and you, you should report to who, to the CEO or whoever ultimately owns product in your organization, which might be different folks. I, I find that something that I think is oddly uncomfortable is when product is a part of marketing. I've seen that in some companies. Um, I'm not against the idea. It just doesn't immediately make sense to me. It doesn't seem logical, but uh, it must work because companies do that. Um, I find that that might be true in like consumer products org where kind of marketing is what's driving product strategy and product roadmap. So um, in that case, it probably is more of like an execution oriented role. Um, and at that point, chief product officer is really the CMO anyway. It, it's a little different, but yeah, I think from a tech perspective, uh, I feel pretty strongly about that. So what is the job of the chief product officer? Um, look, I think I'll say this for Gamelon and I'll use it as a, as an example. Like my job is to, to figure out how to connect the dots between what the market needs, what what are what the customer needs um what we need as a business to to grow to to not just satisfy customers but to figure out like how to execute a strategy what our technology can do how we can differentiate and to tie all these things together and to build a, a vision that uh get that, that allows us to kind of iterate our way to a successful future and to tie the pieces together to tell both a story about why we exist, not only to ourselves, but to our customers, but to also tell a story that allows our teams to be effective at executing on their own. Um, so that engineers know why they're building the thing that they're building um, and allows them the freedom and the flexibility to think about the bigger picture, um, to figure out how to make really smart decisions. Like these are great, amazing, creative, super smart people. Like you shouldn't be telling them what to do. You should tell them what you're trying to solve and let them solve it. And that's, I think for me, the job of a chief product officer is that it's what is the vision? How do we communicate that vision and tell that story in a way that allows people to uh, execute? And that's, I think at a high level, at least um, what I see is that role. But I think that's an interesting <laughs> yeah. part of the product role is you, you spend enough time learning a product, you come to know the aggregate of it better than everybody around you, but you never know more than all of your peers do in their areas. And it's an interesting position I've always found to me. I've always found it empowering to like have to constantly be learning from the people around me to do yeah. my job better. Um, so, well, you know, well, I, not just, not just learning from them, but like in a way, the other part of the job is empowering, like, like figuring out how to unblock them. Like you need to understand everything and, and be available to folks so that you know, like part of your job is to tell the vision. And then the other part is to get, is to remove obstacles. So 
I feel like that's the job in a nutshell, right? Is you have to know where you're going so you know what obstacles to remove. If your organization is at a size where the problem that you're solving is sort of acting as a translation from the team to the executives, to the board, your job is to look at the vision that the team is painting and make sure that it aligns, right? It's more about obstacle removal. It's more about alignment. And what you're doing is not managing the people, but you're managing the outcome. And that's just, that's part of growing in an organization and getting to a certain size. And you have to be, I think, trustworthy enough or respected enough that people believe you can remove those obstacles so they come to you. Otherwise you're ineffectual, right? Yes. So, uh, anyway. Yep. Yep. Um, so I think the one question that I often sort of wrestle with, I was wondering, are there any things that come to mind for you as mistakes you've learned the hard way in your journey as a product owner and product manager? Um, one of the things I think happens, especially, you look, there's a lot of really smart folks in all fields. There's certainly a lot of smart product managers. And oftentimes the thing that makes them want to be a product manager is they're good problem solvers. They like to yes. gather a lot of information and try to figure out what's the problem we're trying to solve and how to solve it. Yep. The early lesson working with really smart technical co-founders was don't tell me how to solve the problem. Tell me the problem and be really, really good at communicating the problem. It's not like, well, here's what the customer wants. It's what's the problem they're trying to solve. And I I think actually early sales skills maybe contributed there because it's a similar pattern with good sales is you really have to understand what problem the customer wants to solve in order to know you're going to win the deal. I think in a way product is like that. I think Luckily, I don't think I had to learn the lesson very many times before I stopped <laughs> trying to tell them how to do it. Yes. Um, but look, even today, and I feel like I'm really disciplined about this. And even you know, today, it, it happened where I kind of slipped into describing the solution. In order to be good at this job, you also have to be able to solve the problems or at least have a pretty good idea of how mm-hmm. you're going to solve the problems. And you also simultaneously have to resist saying anything about that, <laughs> right? And so that's, I think that's, kind of an interesting um, thing that might not always be clear, especially if you've got somebody who's coming from a CS background, they think of themselves as a technical person. And I've, I've worked with product managers that are coming from like data science or, or being engineers, and that's their muscle. That's what they're used to flexing. And now you have to tell them, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Like you need to be, you need to pull that back. And that's yeah. even harder. Yeah. Um, so like that's that's an example I think of one. something. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I've had a similar experience a lot in my career working with experience designers. You know, I think it's similar yeah. where you walk into a room with a formed vision of what you think the solution needs to look like. Right. But same thing. The worst thing you can do is just open your mouth and say what this needs to look like. Um, and I'm often sensitive to like when I. Sh- if I have inspiration, if I, if I want to refer to another product, like how do you do that in a way where you're accelerating the path to a solution that, that meets all of the neat criteria and context that you have? Yeah. 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 It's an interesting, I think the, the other thing that I would say that's kind of an interesting point is when you're earlier in your career, you're looking for validation 
And so you tend to avoid people who argue with you. <laughs> um, for whatever reason, I, don't ex I can't explain it. I have not suffered from that. And so instead I have sort of sought out people who want to argue with me. Yep. Sometimes maybe over indexing on that, but you know, the thing that I found early on the, that I have seen other people not handle as well. And I've, I've, this is something I've learned to coach is that um, generally if you have two really smart people with really differing opinions and they're coming from very different points of view, when you can settle on a solution that satisfies both of you, it is almost always a winner because it's very hard to do that. Yeah. It's very easy to fall into a like-minded, like, oh, I'm gonna design for me and then other people will like that. And being able to find somebody who's just really views the world differently and to lean into that. I think that's another thing that often, when you figure out how to unlock that and leverage it and like really own it and use it. Like it is an accelerator. Like it just changes things because uh, frankly, like I'll say like in the past, the things that have maybe garnered the most arguments have almost always inevitably ended up with the most universally uh, viable solutions. They're the most flexible. They're used by the most for the most, like if they're just, Frankly, they're just more universal, more successful solutions. Now, this is not always universally true, but there are certainly cases where when you can find that feedback, when there is an opportunity to find somebody who's going to push you in hard in the other direction, it may not always net out in the perfect solution, but I think more often than not in my experience, if you can find a collective middle ground, if you can find something where you both go, oh yeah, that's better, you know, like that's, yeah, that makes sense. That's, um, I tend to think, something I try to get people to, to seek out as well. So I think that's a, yeah. that was a lesson. I don't know if it was hard earned, but it was certainly, uh, <laughs> it was certainly earned. And I do think that's something that I, I look for now mm -hmm. and seek out. Yeah. Yep. No, that's interesting. So you're trying to find those points of disagreement as opportunities. So do you sort of identify people in your organization that you take these problems to and try to drum up these differing opinions? Or do you have a methodology by, by which you apply that principle? So every organization ends up being a little different on this. Um, I've been blessed in most of the companies that I've worked in that this was a very natural thing. It just happened. You sort of knew the people that to go to for those insights? It was, yeah, it was that, um, like, I knew who they were, but also, like, in two of, out of four cases, they were my co-founders, so, okay. you know, there was no yeah. escaping them anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, stuff like that. I think that's, um, in those cases, it's easy. Now, when you get into larger organizations, yeah. what happens is... Um, as the org grows and teams get smaller and they get kind of broken up and, and distributed a little bit more across the org and, and things become a little more siloed. Um, what naturally happens is that people gravitate towards people who agree with them. Cause it just, it, at the beginning, it feels more efficient. It feels like you just get more work done faster. Yep. Um, and then in, I think as you get into organizations that are kind of more mid-sized and larger, you do have to seek it out. Um, and so you do have to try to identify those people and when you get in really big organizations, you're not incentivized to push back for against anybody. You don't want to be the guy who's like, I think your idea is stupid, you know, or something more productive than that. And so you do, you have to find ways to seek it out. And that's where I think getting customer feedback is more valuable. Like first off, in, organ in larger organizations, you have them. 
you know, when you're in a startup, <laughs> you don't always have them, or at least you don't have as many. Um, and the ones that you do have are kind of buying your vision anyway, right? So you're not going to get that much pushback. So yeah, I think it depends on the stage of the org. It depends on the kind of the problem, the kind of problem that you're trying to solve. And so I think the methodology or the process has to be adaptable to the organization that you're in. Mm-hmm. Feels like a cop-out answer, but I think that's just no, 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 genuinely no. been true. Well, I, I guess where I was going with that was in my own experience. I've seen the conflict result in rank getting pulled in bigger organizations, right? And there was a, and, and another uh, marketing leader I was talking to recently described it as the Oh, what is she? It's such a great analogy. I think she described it as the like the, the, the strawberries principle, which is like the CEO walks into a room and is like strawberries are out on the table for like lunch. And for the next three months, when lunch is ordered and the CEO is going to be in, in that room, there's strawberries out on that table. And it's, and, and CEO's like, why, why are we always ordering strawberries? I just, that walked in the room that day and said, I liked strawberries. I thought that was a really insightful thing. It was like, yeah, you know, a lot of times I've seen that play out where so-and-so said this thing offhand and now we have to really follow that versus, I think at the end of the day, a lot of being a great product leader is always bringing it back to the customer and saying like, we're not yeah. designing this for us. We're designing right. this for them. And too often that gets forgotten and to, to be a product leader is to always be the one sort of ringing that bell and saying, who's our audience here? So, you know, and sort of maybe not as obvious or unspoken point, you know, part of the job is part of the reason to have a chief product officer is you have to have somebody who can push back on the CEO to remind them of that point. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I get you think that's the right thing to do, but in this case, the customer needs to solve a different problem. And by the way, it, it should never be like, oh, this is the faster horses problem, right? Part of what you're doing is you're figuring out what are they really trying to do? What's the actual thing you need to solve? Because if you just say to the CEO, well, they've asked for this, well, you've lost the argument right there. CEOs don't get to be where they are by just giving the customer exactly what they asked for. Um, no. And, and that's not ever, almost ever the successful thing. The, the right thing is to try to figure out the, the problem. And that's where I think for product, like, sorry, if I was telling any good product person, like, what, what should you do? How do you win an argument? It's easy. Get enough customer data to tell you what the actual answer is. And that's, you do that with prototypes. You do that with, with you know, clickable wireframes or whatever. And good Lord, thank God for all the amazing people who built these great tools that didn't exist 15 years ago (laughs) to do exactly that with minimal investment, you know, um, it allows you to validate and gather data so much better and faster than has ever been possible before. That's how you, that's what should drive the ship. You know, leadership forms the hypothesis about kind of what rock should you look under? Like, (laughs) I think it's that rock, go look under there, but you shouldn't say like, and pull this thing out look for the patterns, look under there, like find the thing that you need to do and then use the data to suggest what the biggest opportunity is there to go after. I think, I think that's, I'm agreeing with you. I think I'm just, yeah, uh, yeah, just yeah, agreeing. Sure. With you. Yeah. I think that's being with customers. You know, if you're a B2B SaaS product for outside sales rep, delivery drivers, whatever that is, and you, you, you need to be, out with them for one, like, yeah. but, but beyond that, do you actually 
lead testing sessions and stuff yourself. Do you think it's okay to delegate that to experienced designers, researchers, and so on? How close do you try to stay to the primary inputs that form the data that backs those decisions about the product? And how close do you think people need to stay as companies grow? Yeah, those are two different things. So I tend to stay close, very close. I think that's a personal strength. So I'm just constantly trying to stay as close to customers as possible. And um, for me, I'm constantly looking for the pattern that's below the surface, right? Across all the conversations, there's often a thread that not one of them has pulled on enough, but that is common. And I've just always seen that that's been true. Um, And the best way to do that is to be sitting like. You know, maybe it's a bad habit, but I just don't think there's ever been anything as valuable a lesson in my career as um, uh, this goes back to bold chat days, actually. And it was a customer who I felt like was the biggest opportunity. Like there was just so much untapped potential and I couldn't figure out why they weren't really using the product as effectively. And a lot of time, this is a job that ends up giving the, being given to customer success and it just kind of gets lost in the wash sometimes. And um what I did was I was, I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to go out there for a meeting and we're going to be talking, but I was like, you know, part of what I want to do is I want you to give me like three hours. I'd like to spend an hour with each person. I just want to sit with them and watch what they do. And I, so, I mean, just, it was instant with each one of them. Like it was supposed to be an hour and I was supposed to sit there quietly and observe. And, and I remember it was like, you know, five minutes. I was like, Hey, why did you do that thing? And they're like, Oh, and you know, they'd show me, I'm like, you realize if you just see that tab, if you click that tab, it basically does that thing for you. Like, oh my God, I just never clicked a tab. Like one of the best lessons was no matter how obvious you make something, it's amazing how few users will see it and do the thing. And you, you just, especially as products become more complex, like it's really natural, especially for B2B software that, that 20, 25% of what you've built is what they use. And the rest of it is potentially right there in front of them and it doesn't get utilized. And so sitting with them, watching the things that got overlooked and seeing the common workflows um, and the processes that people use to sometimes work around features that you already have was so telling. And you, you could have talked to a dozen customer success people. You could have looked at a million reports. You could have done so many things that we've added to our businesses today to try to satisfy some of those problems. And it would have, all of them would have obscured what I was able to figure out in like the first 15 minutes of the first meeting. Um, And then I used the second and third meetings with the other people who were using the product to just validate and check. And it turns out, yeah, there was a really common pattern that was, that emerged instantaneously. You just knew. Nothing replaces that for me. And I think that's a mistake if anybody ever thinks, if they're in a product role, that they think that that's someone else's responsibility. Like, you have to know that you, in a way, if you, if you're not dog fooding it, you know, if, if you're not lucky enough to be working on a product that you can dog food, you better know that user better than they know themselves. Yep. That's your job. And that's, um, if it comes naturally great, if it's because you're dog fooding it, great. If it's hard, figure it out and make a process, <laughs> find a way. Um, there's nothing more important now. In other organizations, it might be true that um, you just can't. <laughs> like, like, it's possible. I can foresee scenarios where the company is big enough, the products are diverse enough that 
a product line, you know, a product line manager may have a dozen products or something like that. And they just can't be that close to it. And I would say like, you figure it out, like find whatever proxies you can and make, build your organization to solve for that problem. Um, make, make customer success be part of product. If you have to like do something to proxy that experience. Cause, um, that's how products die. Yeah. No, totally. Well, it's interesting. As I hear you saying, you have to have your sleeves rolled up to be a good product. You have to be with the customer, with the, and, and the more you get into this world of a, a, head, a chief product officer, or what have you, being a manager of people and teams, the further away they become, you could almost argue, from the core of what makes the role important. You know, it's an interesting yeah. thing. And, and like, so I wonder if there's a point of diminishing returns in terms of the size of a product organization, the number of reports that that individual may, may have where you're no longer doing what allows you to be uh, effective as a product leader. Look, I mean, this is why you build levels in an organization, right? Is at a certain point, it becomes untenable to manage a certain number of people. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I've always owned uh, design and experience at companies. So for me, it was, um, was kind of used to having direct reports. In fact, in some cases, I acted as an IC on that probably far longer than I should have. Um, uh, yeah, so I, you know, look, maybe I find that almost every situation like this, it kind of depends on the organization and it depends on the, the product, the, the customers, like there's so many variables to just say that there's like a specific approach, like to your point, like, yeah, there is a point where you're getting pulled away from some of the more vital things. Yeah. Um, your job is to grow an organization to make sure that's not happening. Yeah. 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 Matt, I've really enjoyed just, just sort of hearing, hearing you out, hearing your background. Um, and I've, I've learned things from today. Yeah. So. Uh, well, I've certainly enjoyed it. I hope you got out of it what you needed. Sounds like you've uh, absolutely hopefully Definitely. hopefully I've set the bar low, and now you can I, have lots of these conversations. And... <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, this has been a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, that's awesome. I appreciate it, man. It's good to meet you. <laughs> Sounds good. Enjoy Great to meet you, Matt. Cheers. Enjoy, Enjoy your evening. It. Thanks. <laughs>